I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We've gone across the pond today and we're talking with one of my friends, so I'm happy. Uh, Alina, have you met Carolyn face-to-face yet? Well, I've met her on the on the chatty thing that we're doing right now. That's probably as face-to-face we're going to get, really, isn't it? For now, but you are going to love drinking with this girl. She's awesome. Okay, Carolyn is just like, her brain is so big, it terrifies me. Not only does she have degrees in history and biology, then she has, like, master's degrees, and she has, like, a PhD in British history as well. So don't be fooled by the southern accent that comes up in a second, um, because she is a boss when it comes to the 18th century in particular in Britain. Um, And her combination of medical knowledge and history is why we're here today, to discuss, frankly why Georgians are absolute lunatics. So first of all, Carolyn's in uh, South Carolina. She's a professor at Furman. Carolyn, how's it going? How's Corona? Uh, We are spending a lot of time inside and I'm very thankful for air conditioning because the heat is getting hot at the moment. Um, Also, it's not ideal when coronavirus shows up during allergy season in the South. So you're always like, Wait, is it Corona or did I just sneeze? Like, what's happening? Is it pollen? <laughs> is it Polonavirus? Or is it just like from pollen? Or is it actually Corona? But well, we're all doing well. <laughs> you know, we're hanging in there. Isn't uh, your state is finally locking down today, isn't it? Yeah, officially, we finally sort of entered the uh, the realm of uh, paying attention to what, and doing what we should. So if finally, our governor has finally entered the, uh, we will send a stay at home, a statewide stay at home order that goes into effect today. So uh, we got news yesterday of uh, 14 crazy ass states in America that um, still haven't banned church gatherings. I mean, they went weeks ago all over Europe. Um, Your state's one of them, isn't it? People are still allowed to go and congregate at church freely. It is. It is is considered an essential service. Um, And so, yes, that is still being permitted. Uh, But again, I I mean, really, until today, most things were still being permitted. Beaches were open. Um, so a lot of stores were open, not all of them. Um, many of them have been sort of shut down, but um, uh, everybody has taken the opportunity to do yard work. So there's been a lot of people at the home improvement store. We don't even have McDonald's anymore here. McDonald's doesn't close in America, does it? That's still going. No, you have to drive through. Like, yeah. you, can't, you can't go inside, but you definitely can still drive through the Mickey D's. It, yeah, they are fully, fully closed in Britain. The line was a mile long on the last day before they closed um, for the drive through. Oh, wow. Quite sad and pathetic. Sad indictment of 21st century society. Anyway, 
Um, we are here to discuss your speciality, and, and it's one that just blows my mind. We are going to talk um, in a world where we are all desperately, desperately, desperately trying not to get sick and trying to afford, avoid uh, contagion. We're going to talk about a period in history where it was considered fashionable to look like you were dying. So uh, <laughs> I'm like, I, I just, I, you're going to have to explain this to us because it's crazy. But we're talking about TB. So let's just start at the beginning. What is tuberculosis? What causes it? How contagious okay. is it? How do you get rid of it? Um, and we're talking about the 18th century, aren't we? Well, primarily the 18th and the first half of the 19th century. So there's about an 80 year period where TB is fashionable, um, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, it's sort of sexy to look like you were dying of tuberculosis, which seems mad, as, as you can imagine. Um, and that's actually how I stumbled onto this project. I thought it was insane. I thought, what? I, you know, as a former microbiologist, I kept stumbling across these references to tuberculosis being an easy and beautiful way to die. But is this had... um, where they powder their faces white? This is what this is, isn't it? Yeah, some of that. I mean, that's part of it as well. Um, so TB uh, is actually caused by a bacteria. It's a bacterial infection. It's caused by the mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, but it wasn't known um, until Robert Koch discovered it in 1882. So they didn't even understand that it was caused by the tubercle bacillus until 1882. Um, today, it is still actually, it's a, high, it's a contagious respiratory illness. So there is some sort of parallel there uh, with it being sort of um, something that, you know, know if somebody coughs on you inappropriately at the wrong time that you could actually end up with TB. Sorry um, that's me. <laughs> yeah so um, so there is that. Um, now it is one of those um, diseases that actually over the course of human history it's not flashy it's not it doesn't kind of reach pandemic status in the way that we're familiar with obviously with the current situation. Instead um, it, it sort of is a more subtle illness it doesn't it doesn't come on quickly. Um, and it can take years to kill you. And so this, it becomes a way of living and not just a way of dying, uh, which is part of it. The other thing is over the course of human history, it's probably killed more people than any other single disease. But again, it's sort of constant in society, sort of behind the scenes. Um, and, but in the 18th century, there's a sort of, and the first half of the 19th century, there's a big kind of awareness of it as other more acute illnesses begin to diminish. Um, and also it's sort of um, the kind of more positive presentation actually um, mirrors the epidemic curve for, for tuberculosis or as it was called at that time consumption. So uh, tuberculosis basically was sort of on the rise. It sort of peaked in Britain um, at the end of the 18th century uh, and then began to slowly, slowly decline. Um, in the first half of the 19th century. But really, everybody either sort of knew someone who had the illness, had it themselves, had a family member. So it's definitely one or two degrees of separation, which is something I think we all sadly are, are more familiar with now. When I would explain this in the past, pre-corona, people really couldn't kind of wrap their head around sort of everybody having a, a disease and why it could have that kind of impact on society. Um, but yeah, so it is uh, currently treated with antibiotics, but it is, um, uh, we have a lot of multi-drug resistant strains for tuberculosis. So uh, there are some strains that are resistant to pretty much most, if not all, 
antibiotic therapies that we have. So those are the very scary strains. Uh, there's a lot of work being done sort of on the kind of international level. The World Health Organization has got an initiative to stamp out TB worldwide. Um, but somewhere between like probably one in every seven people kind of globally, um, uh, you know, um, may have been at some point infected with TB. Talking about tuberculosis in the 18th century, how widespread was it and what kind of symptoms would you expect to have? Well, it was fairly widespread. Um, it, it sort of, tuberculosis is interesting because it does not respect class, it doesn't respect status. Denizens of hovels as well as mansions are afflicted by it, right? And so when you have say, for instance, in the 18th century, somebody from the, the aristocracy or the middle, or sort of growing middling sort, coming down with it, at the same time, there are sort of um, similar, you know, afflictions of people in the lower classes, in the lower orders, people sort of require some sort of vindicated explanation, right? Oh, I have to sort of separate myself from that other kind of group. So consumption or tuberculosis, uh, as it was called, as we call it now, but it wasn't called tuberculosis until really the end of the 19th and early part of the 20th century. Before that, it was known by a variety of names, but consumption was sort of the common one in the 18th and the early part of the 19th century. And it reflected the idea that, that, that your body was consumed, that it wasted away. So um, in its early stages, it sort of presents with things like paleness, rosy cheeks, because you're constantly running a low-grade Fever. It's called a hectic fever or a hectic flush. So you have sort of pale skin, rosy cheeks. Your eyes were sort of bright and sparkling because you were running a fever. It's very sexy to run a fever, apparently, in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and uh, they also thought that it made your eyelashes dark and glossy, that it made your teeth white. Uh, but it also kind of presents in a thinning of the body. And so in the early stages, and, the, and before it really progresses to kind of the the um, more kind of grotesque symptoms, it mimics things that were already considered attractive in women, right? A thin body, pale skin, rosy cheeks. These were things, red lips, these were all things that were already considered attractive in women. Um, but as it progresses, you get, not only do you constantly have the fever, you get night sweats, you have diarrhea, um, you have like a progressive emaciation, they have difficulty eating, they have difficulty like um, they're, they begin to sort of cough in, in sort of paroxysms of coughing and then they, ha they have the sort of symptom that most people identify with it, which is the spitting up of blood, the coughing up of blood from like down in the lungs. Uh, and so the actual kind of presentation is pretty horrific. It's actually a terrible way to die. It's an awful way to go. Um, and the people in the 18th century and in the 19th century weren't dumb. They knew that, right? So they knew it was a terrible way. So why do they kind of create this fiction in some ways or, or really focus on this more attractive presentation? I mean, that's what I was going to say to you. Like, how the hell does... I mean, it sounds horrific. How does it become romanticized? But you've kind of begun to explain that with the, the early symptoms and how they mimic <laughs> things that were viewed as attractive. The other, the other explanation rests in, in the actual understanding of the disease. So in a, there's a class split. I know this will not come as a surprise to anyone who knows anything about the 18th or 19th century in Britain, or even today, right? That explanations, and even then when we think about health inequities, uh, explanations sort of um, were posited along health um, or along sort of class lines. So in the middle and upper classes, it was considered as a disease of refinement, 
Um, and it was considered a disease that um, signified a, a refined functioning of the nervous system. So in the 18th century, um, diseases in particular all begun to have a nervous component and not nervous in the way we think of like Victorian hysterics, not that kind of nervous, but instead all kind of health and, and disease goes back to the proper functioning of the nervous system and that you have a sort of a, a certain quality um, of sensibility that can animate um, intellectual genius, particularly in men. And so that was seen as a diagnostic category. So when we think about people like Keats, right, the idea that they're identified by both their disease, but also by their sort of romantic, like intellectual capacity. Um, and also in women, it, beauty was the diagnostic marker. So women who were more attractive were seen as those most likely to come down with or suffer from the illness. So the idea in the, in the 18th century, beginning of the 18th century, really kind of pushing into the first half of the 19th century, is that consumption was a hereditary illness. So that you inherited not the disease, but you inherited a predisposition to it. So you are more likely to come down with it. You have a pre-existing condition uh, that is your weak constitution. And that if you do any number of things to activate it, it's going to cause consumption. So this is how you have this like list of like all sorts of crazy things that cause tuberculosis. They're like, oh, you read a novel. Are you like too much application to study? Consumption. You played the harp and you bent over too much. Consumption. You danced too vigorously. Consumption. You went from the hot ballroom to the cold carriage. Consumption. And so this is the way in which they explain all of these things. In the lower classes, it, um, the disease is never presented as attractive, and it tends to be characterized as scrofula or scrofulous, so it's always seen as a, as a very different kind of illness um, and, and is one that is a product of poor living conditions and vice. And so it's actually treated as a totally separate disease um, along class lines, which is why it can be attractive or a sign of intellectual like genius in one case, and then sort of the marker for slum living in others can you elaborate <clears throat> sorry can you elaborate a little bit more on Keats on the TB and romanticism can you tell us why he's such a good example well Keats is sort of the archetypical um, romantic poet although there are other sort of graveyard poets for instance that are um, uh, sort of write odes to consumption or for instance Henry Kirk White uh, actually dies of consumption and his publicist or, or publisher um, later on admits that, well, he wasn't such a great poet. Um, well, he wouldn't have been as sort of famous if he hadn't actually died of consumption, right? So it becomes fashionable to actually have consumption. Uh, Keats is not, you know, Keats kind of comes down in history as being sort of a done in by a review, um, which is completely antithetical to who he was. He was quite a masculine man. He went like to bear baiting and boxing, like he was out and about like, you know, walking and hiking. So he was quite a vigorous individual. Um, he also had a lot of personal exposure. His mother and his brother died of consumption. And so he himself also had medical training. And so he was aware when he saw the symptoms that this was going to be sort of his fate. So, um, but he is actually characterized like Byron is very dismissive and talks about him as having been done in by a bad review. So he gets a bad review of his poetry in the quarterly review. And people take this as being the origination, like he just couldn't handle it. He's such a sensitive soul. And this begins his decline. But Keats himself doesn't pinpoint his decline to that. He actually pinpoints his decline in other places. And so um, 
it's quite interesting because it becomes that in the in the Romantic period, in the particularly in the 1820s, uh, the teens and the 20s, it becomes consumption becomes that sign of like um, elevated intellectual capacity. So even the medical treatises are talking about the infirmities of genius, right? That that people who have this disease sort of burn very brightly, but then they have to burn out quickly. They exhaust their energy, their vital forces, and then they die. Um, but those that excess of energy is what gives them the ability to make that kind of beautiful poetry and uh, this sort of intellectual genius. Interestingly, by the 1830s and 40s, the disease actually becomes almost exclusively identified with women. And when that happens, people looking back in the 1840s at Keats kind of dismiss him as being effeminate by virtue of his having died of consumption. So, um, so it's a very much sort of cyclical depending on what kind of period we're talking about. So you've just mentioned how it becomes feminized. Um, your book is called Consumptive Chic. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us how TB becomes a fashion statement. How does this evolve and, and how do people project this? Well, um, so there's a, several different kind of interactions. Um, obviously, fashions change quite a bit from, say, the 1780s through 1850, right? And the book sort of covers that. Um, and there are elements of fashion and interplay between fashion and the disease throughout that entire period, but it looks different depending on the time period. So um, as we're talking about neoclassical dress, so that kind of very standard Jane Austen style, you know, kind of empire style or, or regency style gown um, with a short waist and the diaphanous fabrics, right? Um, people begin to get concerned that these new fashions are actually making the English population sick, particularly women. And there's a sort of a huge diatribes, and this is not new. Women's fashions are always sort of the target of blame for something. Um, but in this period with this new kind of, um, these new fashions, women are being sort of charged with wearing clothing that is completely antithetical to health, particularly in the English climate, right? And so there are all these sort of complaints, for instance, about, uh, you know, um, or women are sort of satirized and said, you know, uh, a, the woman of England is like the English oak, beautiful, but bare in winter, right? And so that women are not wearing the correct clothing. And so they're going outside and they're getting sick. So that's sort of one component of it. The other thing is we begin to see women um, highlight certain symptoms of the illness as the illness becomes, or those um, ideas about beauty become increasingly prominent. So the idea of a thin frame is also enhanced during the same time we move to neoclassical dress. If you're a if you're a portly lady, you can't really pull off that like that neoclassical dress, that thin muslin, like it's not gonna look great on you. You're gonna look like, you know, a sort of a sausage roll. Like it's not gonna be <laughs> And so, you know, not everybody can pull this off, but so that kind of increasing desire for a thin frame happens at, uh, in the same period. So women are looking to be sort of skinnier. Um, at the same time, we also see sort of the rise of, of the smile. Um, so there are advances in dentistry and in dental appliances and women, uh, so that sort of fashion for teeth being kind of more white. Um, and we begin to see like, people smiling in portraits and teeth being actually sort of um, uh, visible for the first time in a lot of portraits. And so we begin to also see like that fashion for the smile, for instance. 
And so a disease that gives you white teeth in an era before crest white strips or dental like, you know, whitening is something that's going to be seen as having some positive benefits as well as negative. Uh, the idea, um, for instance, of um, as you're very, very pale in consumption, you're also the skin gets almost translucent. And so not only does it get very white, but it becomes translucent. And so that the your veins become quite prominent. And so there's a fashion for sort of painting on veins. Uh, there's a real sort of complaint, they rail against it. Um, uh, the Mirror of the Graces complains, I think in 1811, they say, you know, that women are painting on fictitious veins with this, you know, through fictitious alabaster with as fictitious a dye, right? So they're drawing on like fake blue veins over like, you know, really sort of caked on white makeup. Um, and because they're trying to look like they have of, uh, a very sort of refined translucent skin and it's something that comes naturally with consumption uh, but interestingly in the classical dress one of the other things we see is the dresses um, get very low in the back and one of the symptoms of consumption you get sort of what's called a, a, a winged back appearance so women begin to sort of stoop and curve over and their their shoulder blades pop up almost like a bird it's always described as a bird about to take flight um, and the clavicles also at the front become very, very prominent. And you start seeing in fashion plates, they start drawing it in. So they're drawing in the cleavage in the front, but then they draw in the cleavage on the back. They draw in the posterior furrow. So it's almost like they're highlighting a back cleavage and the dresses come very low, which is actually a symptom of the illness. And there's all these complaints about, they call it the disgusting fashion for showing the backbone. And for about 15 years, people are railing against this. They're like, women just look like living anatomies. Doctors could just like, you know, study anatomy from these living osteologies because they're so thin and so pale and so exposed both like physically as well as to the elements. So that's one sort of aspect of it. But as we move into the Victorian period, the early Victorian period in particular, um, in the 1830s and 40s, uh, it becomes more of a game of emulation. So in the, you know, kind of first part of the, the end of the 18th and the early part of the 19th century, uh, they are actually um, highlighting the symptoms. But as we move into the 1830s, and particularly the 1840s, which is like the height of this fashion, uh, they actually begin emulating. Women begin dressing in clothing that forces the healthy body into the same shape as the diseased body which is just kind of mind-boggling in a lot of ways. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Can you tell us more about how the corsetry tie in with all of this? I mean, you've mentioned uh, the dresses and 
the, the positions of the body and for example the the lower back how how does the corsetry work in all of this Absolutely. So as we move particularly into the 1830s and 40s, the corsets become a bigger part of sort of this consumptive chic, for lack of a better way to put it. So obviously the, the waists get thinner, um, but what becomes very interesting in the 1840s is that the corsets not only pull the waist in, but they pull the torso in as well. So if you look at examples, uh, extant examples of corsets actually from the 1840s, they not, they're not just about making your waist tiny. They're actually about compressing the entirety of your torso. So your rib cage is pulled in and, and could sort of like put into the, almost into line with your waist, right? And so there's very little difference between the width of the rib cage and, and the waist um, in those corsets. They're very heavily boned um, and they actually force your body to sort of stoop over. They actually pop up the shoulder blades over the top of the corset um, and they force that stoop-shouldered wing-backed appearance that you see in consumption is actually forced mechanically by the um, corset. It also tilts your hips forward. So you're basically almost in a C shape slightly. Um, and so women basically between the cut of the corsets and then the cut of the dresses, which the, the bodices were very tight, um, the arms were sort of dropped off the shoulder. And so what that meant is that if you think about like where the seam on your shirt shirt is or where the seam on your shoulder is, if you drop that down and then you make it very tight, women couldn't lift their arms up basically above a right angle easily. And so they were forced into this slumped and stooped posture um, that is natural in those sort of um, suffering from consumption. So at the same time that these dresses are making healthy women look sick, Doctors are complaining that these dresses are making these women, they're giving them the disease itself. So they complain, tight lacing obviously is a problem or concern for, for um, medical, the medical community at the time. They're constantly complaining about corsetry. Um, and corsetry has always sort of been this like uh, sort of bugbear when it comes to um, uh, thinking through uh, like the problems of women in fashion, like doctors are constantly kind of coming back to this one. But in this period, um, it, it really becomes something that uh, physicians are seeing corsets as creating a stoop that is actually causing consumption. So if you look at the kind of what is thought to cause the disease, um, we begin to see um, the, the stoop that is like created, um, as being sort of an architect of the illness. So, so consumption is not only emulating, is not being, is not just being emulated by the corsets, but then also we begin to see, um, doctors saying, aha, this is why women are dying in such large numbers. Now, there was a, a belief that women were more susceptible to consumption and that they would die of tuberculosis in higher numbers. There's no actual evidence that really kind of plays out. The numbers don't kind of um, play that out. But the perception at the time definitely was that more women were dying than men, and it had to be a function of their schooling um, and of their lifestyle and particularly of their fashions, which is part of it. The other thing that's quite interesting, so if we think about the neoclassical where people are wearing kind of makeup and um, trying to emulate that look, when you move into the 1830s and 40s, that early Victorian period, um, the ability or the acceptability of wearing makeup like visibly had gone out the window, right? You weren't really allowed or, or respectable women did not like 
visibly paint, right? They did not actually, you know, you want to make a subtle hand and there were lots of diatribes about like painting and particularly certain cosmetics, uh, pearl white, for instance, which is a, um, an extract of bismuth, lead and tin. Um, so lots of, lots of makeups were lead based. And if women were wearing these, physicians also believed that this had the ability to cause consumption. And so because women weren't like visibly allowed to wear makeup any longer, not, not that they should have in, in large kind of numbers in the past, but it was more acceptable earlier on to, to wear cosmetics. By this point, it kind of goes out of the window. And, and because of that, something like tuberculosis, which provides beauty naturally, um, in, is actually all of a sudden elevated as something even more desirable. And, and physicians actually talk about the fact that there's a belief that what is on the exterior of a woman is a true representation of what is the, in the heart of a woman. So the idea that the prettier you are, the better a human you are. And as we all know, that is not actually how that works. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> the idea that, like, women were actually, like, if you were, the more attractive you were, the better, like, character you had. And doctors begin, like, there are these great, like, lectures they're teaching at medical schools. And, and, and they're saying, you know, selfishness and hardness of character are less frequently found in, like, women who have consumption. And that the, or in men as well. But mostly, you know, that's found in people who have this disease. And that the artist might be true in saying, you know, that the good die first. So there's this real kind of cultural shift that connects consumption or tuberculosis with goodness. And so you're a good and virtuous person and you're attractive. So all of these things are sort of tied up together, which is why you would want to try to make yourself dress like you, you know, had the disease. If it's going to make you look like you're a good human and you're pretty, why not? Right. Alina's face is just a picture of utter disbelief. Um, when do, you said the peak of this is the 1840s. When do people finally cease this madness? Well, so the, the, the fashion goes out at the end of the 1840s and the early 1850s. But the idea that consumption is pretty continues. So um, the, the connection to fashion is broken at the end of the 1840s and the early 1850s. And it's broken when the connection to respectability is broken. So if you take a disease that in the 1840s is a sign that you are a good and beautiful and virtuous woman, and you all of a sudden associate it with prostitutes and poor people, it's a really funny how all of a sudden the middle and upper class women are like, never mind, I don't think that way anymore, never mind. <laughs> and so what happens in 1848, um, Dumas Fils publishes a book called La Dame aux Camellias, which is the basis for um, the, the Lady with the Camellias. It's based on a true life of a, a Parisian courtesan by the, na by the name of Alphonse Duplessis, who lived, was the toast of the Parisian demi-monde, um, and she lived like the biggest sort of fullest life. Um, and she dies very young, uh, like in her early 20s of tuberculosis. And she was so famous that actually like there was an auction of her belongings after her death. And Charles Dickens actually went to Paris and attended the auction of her belongings. So she was quite famous. Well, he writes this book, sort of a semi-fictionalized account of her life. And this becomes the basis for like those tragic 19th century, like, you know, heroine operas, if we think about, are the, the operas where, you know, the woman has to die beautifully of tuberculosis, but she can be redeemed from 
the life of like prostitution. Um, so it becomes the basis of La Traviata, La Boheme, right? These sort of things. Or if you think about Moulin Rouge, right? It's the same story. It's the idea of like the, the fallen woman who falls for somebody, has consumption, has tuberculosis. She, she can be redeemed by the suffering of tuberculosis. She's still beautiful because she has TB, but she can't end up happy. She can't have a happy ending, right? So, but she can be redeemed through a good death from a, a beautiful death from tuberculosis. I have to ask, like, before we finish, is, can you see any correlation between this bizarre response to a deadly illness in the 18th and 19th centuries and how people are behaving with COVID-19? Well, it's interesting. You know, my social media is quite funny. Uh, some friends of mine were like, you need to write a new book, a coffee table book on like, you know, coronavirus chic. Um, and it'll all be people in their sweatpants and wearing like... <laughs> <laughs> and things like that, right? And so, you know, and, and it's become sort of a, it's a way in which, you know, people are marking their identity, right? Like, everybody's like, well, forget it. I'm going to wear yoga pants. I don't, I don't go to work anymore. I'm going to wear sweatpants or my pajamas, right? And so it's a new kind of way of, like, creating an identity that is like the COVID identity, right? It is. Um, it's trampy because I, I have not worn makeup, like, once since it started. And you go and yeah. get in the horrific line for the supermarket and everybody looks like crap. And no one cares. It is, yeah. It's kind of liberating. It is. It is in a way, right? But it's sort of like, it, it's like you're assuming an identity, right? Yeah. And so the parallel is not that coronavirus is attractive, but it's a coping strategy, right? That everybody is just trying to like find like the positive in, in this sort of very horrific situation. And that is the correlation, right? So the thing with tuberculosis is it was a death sentence. Once they, even doctors, like quack medicine, like quacks were like, it, if you had a confirmed consumption, as it was called, it was a death sentence. They were like, you could go off to like the Mediterranean, enjoy some holiday, you're gonna die over there. But like the best thing they could say is like, we're moved to a, a warmer climate. Um, and this is why, you know, Pete's ends up in Rome and dies there, right? Um, and so, but it's a way of providing meaning for what is the senseless death uh, if you think about your lovely young daughter, for instance, who is wasting away in front of you from a disease that you, you can't, you know, control or do anything about, and you know they're not going to make it, there's a, it's a way of providing some sort of meaning to something that it seems meaningless, right? Um, one of the really interesting uh, examples, there's a great kind of like, crazy kind of love triangle um, that sort of happens between two of the daughters of uh, Sarah Siddons, the very the famous sort of 18th century dramatic actress, and two of her daughters fall for the portrait painter Thomas Lawrence, who we see all his kind of beautiful portraits all over, you know, stately manors and in museums all over, particularly in the UK. Um, and uh, he's, he's, you know, a magnificent painter, but kind of a terrible boyfriend. Um, and he, his sort of the older daughter falls for him and he sort of falls for her and they're about to sort of announce their intentions. And Thomas Lawrence is like, well, so I'm sorry. I'm sort of mistaken. I'm not really in love with you, Sally. Instead, I'm in love with your younger, more attractive 16 year old sister, Mariah. And he throws Sally over and falls in love with Mariah and asks to marry Mariah. And Mariah's father is like, absolutely not. 
um, you're an artist, you have no like financial wherewithal. Also, my daughter's 16, so no. Yeah. Um, also, now, you screwed over my other daughter as well. Good for dad. Yeah, yeah you would think so. Well, mom allows um, Mariah, 16, and Thomas to carry on a clandestine relationship for two years with only like their 19 year old friend, Miss Bird, as a chaperone sometimes, which is pretty sketchy, as you can mm. imagine. Um, and after two years, Mariah is, is beautiful and there's a concern because of her beauty that she is more likely to come down with tuberculosis. And Mariah has a fit of illness and sort of blackmails her family. She's like, you know, if I'm like disappointed in love that could bring on the consumption, which is another thing that was thought to bring upon consumption is like tragic love affair, dis- grief, disappointment in love. Um, and so they, she kind of blackmails her family into allowing the, um, the uh, engagement and it happens. So they allow the engagement. Now keep in mind, Lawrence has chased her for like two years Within two months of their formal engagement, he's like, so actually, I was really, I'm really still in love with Sally. And so he throws over Mariah, who is actually ill and beginning to like die of tuberculosis and starts chasing her sister again. Mariah goes off to like the, the hot wells in Clifton to kind of take the waters and to get better. And she just gets sicker and sicker and sicker. And, and I mean, it's all sorts of things. There's like a tabloid newspaper that actually accidentally reports that she's died before she's died. Her mom is off, you know, traveling for work. And so sends her sister down. So Sally gets there. Mariah extracts a deathbed promise from Sally. She makes Sally promise that she will not marry Lawrence after she dies, that she will never be the wife of Mr. L. Um, and Sally is desperately in love with him and she's already given him up once for Mariah and Mariah's making her give him up again. And so she kind of like backs her into a corner and she's like, if it's the only way that, that, you know, you can die happy and die at peace, then okay. Well, you know, Mariah basically says, yes, it is. So Mariah dies and, and arguably maybe not the nicest character. You know, she definitely like kind of gave it some like, and also she right stole to- her sister's boyfriend for a start, man. That's, that's not cool. She did the first time around and then denied him in, in death after. Right. But afterwards, um, her family starts kind of talking about how like her death, it's actually, she dies in 1798, okay? So she dies after, like, the Battle of the Nile. And they literally say the death of Nelson would not be so lamented as the death of this young woman. Um, and so they slap this kind of unbelievable rhetoric on it. And then later on, some of the family members are like, well, she was pretty and young. So maybe it was more about that. She really wasn't, like all that in a bag of chips. And so it's a, it's a it's a way of sort of making meaning of things and sort of glossing over things after the fact, right? It's insane. And he sounds like a complete dick. Um, yeah, he's like <laughs> definitely not quality dating material. No. no. I think dad had a measure of him right at the beginning. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about the madness of Georgian people and disease um it's funny because we all think everybody now is stupid because i mean people are acting pretty stupid um but it just proves that people have always been dumb there's always there's always dumb asses around and there's always people who are looking to sort of find some way of coping with things that are in their control right 
Oh, well, stay safe in South Carolina. Um, totally miserable day for us at History Hack today um, with illnesses. But Carolyn just got engaged, so yay! <laughs> Happy New <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And thanks for keeping us all entertained during our quarantines. And our <laughs> We're going to have to get you back on to talk about the madness of King George's youngest daughter. Is she the youngest one? Oh, yes, yeah. yes. She is an intriguing character. Between that and the, you know, the, the interesting uh, dilemma of the woman who gets locked up in the room above the porch. I've got lots of like fun and scandalous things in the Georgian period. Yeah. To, uh, Keep me occupied during my quarantine. Well, enjoy them. Um, we'll have you back on to talk about them. Uh, join us tomorrow. It's Friday, so it's a bumper day. It's also Good Friday, so we've spoilt you rotten. We have a special program for pole position on the Warsaw Uprising. It's very moving. We have, uh, what else do we have? We have Catherine Fletcher talking to us about rewriting the Italian Renaissance and her new book, The Beauty and the Terror. And then we are down the pub in the evening. We bring you a debate on the greatest warlord of the ancient world they're moving into saturday you get dan snow with a q a and on sunday we have sean bean in case you haven't heard because we have told literally anyone that will listen we have sean bean and jason salkey and our historian zach white talking about sharp the series and the history but until then stay safe if you possibly can stay at home this is nighthawk signing off here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.